Lord, we're grateful. I pray that you would stir that in our hearts, Lord. This idea of gratefulness, Lord. This idea that we're not motivated by rules or pressures or uh, manufactured acceptance, um, insecurities, Lord. We're, We're motivated by gratefulness. We've seen you. We've seen your goodness. We've seen your grace. Um, it's changed our hearts, and we live gratefully. So, Father, do that in us right now, Lord. As we study your word, may you speak to us in the circumstances of our lives. And we ask you in your mighty and precious name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. As you're getting seated and I'm getting organized up here, you can find Acts chapter 15 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's white ones and blue ones up here in this fancy basket we got going. Looks like some dudes are handing those out. If they don't have a Bible on their lap, Stephen, just give it to them. Be like, you need this. If you don't have a Bible at home, you are more than welcome to take that one with you. Or if you don't know where yours is, you can also take that one with you. We would love to give you a Bible. Um, And once you have one of those Bibles that we gave you, it's page 538. Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be at. Starting off on a little bit of a different note, but we'll get there. Uh, This week in the news, maybe some of you are aware, maybe you weren't, Um, There's a football player uh, in Las Vegas, got in a wreck uh, while he was driving under the influence. He was driving 156 miles an hour when he smashed into the back of another car, uh, put that car, instantly burst into flames, and the woman and the dog who were in the car died uh, in the fire. And it's a really big deal to get in a car and drive it when you are under the influence of alcohol. We should know that by now. We, uh, we talk about it enough. I don't know, is this the first anybody's heard of this? They're like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't do that. When I'm... No, we, we all know that, and people still do it, because the problem with the whole thing is, is when you are under the influence of alcohol, you don't think it's a big deal. Right? The people who have had a few drinks, they're like, I'm fine. Nothing's going to happen. It's just a little bit away. It's, you know, just like this is the problem with the issue is, is we know it's a big deal. But in order to communicate that it is a big deal, that would mean someone who is not drinking or someone who is drinking but has the sense about them would have to make a big deal about something that is not currently a big deal to get you not to drive your car. Right? You're out drinking, you're having fun with your friends, you're like, hey, I'm going to get in my car and drive it, and someone would have to go outside their comfort zone, be like, no, don't drive. And you'd be like, whoa, calm down, bro, it's not such a big deal. Like, it is a big deal because you are putting lives at risk. And you could be like, I don't, I don't know why you're making such a big deal about this right now. Like, I'm just driving home or whatever you're doing. And you would have to overcome this barrier of someone making a big deal out of what at the current moment was not a big deal in order to avoid something like this happening. And the Bible does that all the time, right? You'll, you'll be reading through your Bible and the Bible will be like, this is a big deal. And you'll be like, oh, calm down. Just driving home. It's not a big deal. And there's a few instances that you run into in the Bible that are maybe a way bigger deal than you would expect them to be. And you're reading through, and you're like, 
I don't know why you're so mad about this, right? And, and we hit on them as we go through. There's a few of them, like marriage is a bigger deal than, than lots of people think. Like, why did, can't you just marry your horse? And God's like, no, you can't marry your horse, right? Like, it's a big deal to him. There, there's a few others. We're going to hit another one here today in Acts chapter 15. Maybe it's a much bigger deal than you would expect it to be. And, and so, yeah, just prepare your hearts and minds for that that moment. Maybe you're, you're, you've had a few and you're about to get in your car and you're going to read this scripture today and God's going to be like, it's a big deal. And you'd be like, oh, okay. Don't be so abrasive to it. Now, before we get there, I want you to kind of get the idea of where we are in the passage in the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts is kind of this documentary of sorts of the group of Jesus followers and how they became the church that we are a part of in 2021 and how we got from like, hey, Jesus rose from the dead to, hey, Riverstone Chapel is meeting on a Sunday morning. Like there's, how do we get in between there? And so that's kind of what we've been watching. And after Jesus rose from the dead, that community of Jesus followers was kind of entirely in Jerusalem. And because they were entirely in Jerusalem, they were also entirely Jewish. So they kind of, at the beginning, were just like this Jewish sect is what they were called, right? Just this, this kind of section of Judaism still called themselves Jewish, still believed they were Jewish uh, followers of, of the Old Testament Jewish God, right? And then we get to chapter 9, and if you remember in the story as we went through the book of Acts, God actually gave Peter a vision and said, hey, man, there's some people over here that I want to give the Holy Spirit to, and you need to help me out. Not that God needs help, but you know what I mean, right? So he's like, Peter, come on. So Peter goes over, and he shows up, and the guy is a Gentile, which is the Jewish word for a non-Jew. Okay, so Gentile is not like a... I mean, maybe it's derogatory. I don't know. But it's just like, hey, genetically, like, you are not Jewish, right? You, historically, biologically, like, you, you were not born into this. And so he shows up, and this guy's name is Cornelius. He's a Roman soldier, and Cornelius receives the gospel, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and Cornelius' whole household receives the gospel, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. And it was this big moment because the gospel had now jumped outside of the Jewish circle and was now impacting people who were not biologically Jewish. And so uh, Jesus' followers up to this point had all been Jewish, and now they're like, oh, uh, what do we do with this? Do we start preaching the gospel to people who are not Jewish? Like, do you have to be Jewish in order to receive the gospel? And so then we got a couple weeks ago to Acts chapter 13, and Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, and they started in the synagogues preaching to Jewish people. They had a little bit of success. And then the Jewish people were like, actually, we don't like it because your messages don't have enough rules. You're not telling people what they should and shouldn't do enough. You're just telling people that God loves them, that God has done all this stuff for them, and that they need to believe in it. We actually would like a little more control than that. So get out of here. And so Paul and Barnabas said, hey, we tried. You judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. We're now going to go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles started receiving the Lord and being, having their lives changed dramatically. And then Paul and Barnabas went all the way on their missionary journey and came all the way back around. And they're now back at their home church in Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey, so about 200 miles-ish north of Jerusalem. Not a Jewish city, mostly a Gentile city, and this church is growing and exploding, and that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And after verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1 tells us that these men made this 200-odd mile journey up to Antioch from Jerusalem. And part of their message was, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Okay, now circumcision uh, was this mark on your body from Old Testament times that would identify you as a follower of Jesus. So they would, of the men, they would cut the foreskin off the penis. Get your giggles out right now. I said penis, right? So they would cut that off, right? And it was this thing that was like, you are now identified as a, a person of God in this moment. So these guys' message was, hey, we think it's great that you guys love Jesus. We think it's great that you guys have responded to the gospel, but we now need to bring you into the Jewish community and have you follow this one little rule to get you into the Jewish community so that you can actually be saved by God for all of eternity. And we'll be good to go. Now, Paul and Barnabas hear this, and they absolutely freak out. No, 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 no. It says no small dissension, right? Now, the Bible is like comically like economical with its language sometimes. Like this is the same amount of words that it said last chapter. Like Paul was stoned to death, right? No small dissension is like this is a huge deal, like a huge fight. So much so that a delegation is now sent from the church at Antioch down south to Jerusalem in order to solve this by talking to the original 12 or what's left of the original 12 uh, apostles, disciples in Jerusalem. So why is this such a big deal? This is the question. It's just one rule. It's just one little rule. It doesn't even apply to everybody, just the men, right? Girls are like, I don't care, right? So there's like, why is this such a big deal to just have people follow this one rule? It's probably a good idea. Like, it's like a membership class, kind of worst membership class ever, right? But like, like, now you're in, like, we can identify who's in, who's out. I don't know why this is such a big deal, like identifying yourself with a mark on your body that you are a person who desires to follow God. Why would this be such a big deal, Paul? And the picture of symbolizing that I have a life dedicated to God, that picture is not the problem. The problem is that we are adding to what God had set. Okay, so let's see what the big deal is, starting in verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. In verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So the church is facing this pressure, and it's not just facing pressure from random people. These are Pharisees. If you remember, these were the people that had the most opposition to what Jesus had to say. So what is happening is these are very important people. These are highly educated, well thought of, respected members of the culture and community. These would be great people to have on your team if you were a small Jewish sect and wanted to influence the world. You'd be like, hey, let's get these important people to agree with us. So when they say, hey, we got to get circumcised in order to accept these people in, there's a lot of pressure on the church to submit to this. 
to, to compromise and say, yeah, you're right. This is a good idea. But adding to the word of Jesus is absolutely unacceptable to Paul. Absolutely unacceptable to Barnabas. And that's why they make such a big deal and a fight about this. You can't add to it. You cannot add to the words of God. It's a really, really, really big deal to add to the words of God. Let's go back here, just kind of so we understand ourselves. The most famous Bible verse in the entire world, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him and have the skin off his penis trimmed should have everlasting life. Is that what it says? doesn't say that. That whosoever should believe in him and go to the right church would have everlasting life. No, it doesn't say that either. That whosoever should believe in him and follow the right rules would have everlasting life. No, none of that. It's a really big deal because once you start adding to the word of God, once you make that an acceptable thing to do, we are crazy. And we will add all sorts of nutty stuff to this in order to see somebody saved. And this was very hard for the Jewish people to accept. Like, wait, they're not going to be circumcised? They came from the most complicated system ever. Do you remember that? Right? If you remember, they had rules and laws for literally everything. So I bet in their mind, they were doing, they thought they were doing pretty good. Look, we had 600 some odd rules in the Old Testament. Like just narrowing it down to one, like pat ourselves on the back. Like this is great. This is almost free. Almost free is not free. And Paul was like, no, 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 not even one extra rule. Don't add even one, one condition to the salvation of Jesus. Not even one little rule. And as far as rules go, I mean, this is like, a momentary, only the men have to do it. Like, this is like not a big deal. You're like, don't tell me it's not a big deal. Sorry, guys. But it's a big deal to you. But like, just in the grand scheme of things, like this is a very small ask. And yet Paul was not even having it. Do you remember when we studied through the Gospels and the night before Jesus died? He was at the Last Supper. And the Last Supper was a Passover feast. And if you know anything about the Passover feast, if you read through your Old Testament, um, there was rules about literally every part of the feast. It was the most complicated meal you've ever experienced in your life. We're about to do Thanksgiving, right? And we're like, oh, I've got to figure out how to do a turkey, and I haven't cooked one in a year, so I don't remember how to do it. And you're, you're doing all this stuff, and like, how long does it take? I don't remember. And talk about that times a million. There was rules on what food exactly you had to eat. There was rules on how you had to cook that food. There was rules on what order you served the food in. There was rules about how many people were allowed to eat off of this food. There was rules about what you were supposed to wear while you were eating the food. There was rules about the posture. You had to eat it standing up. You weren't allowed to sit down to eat it. There was rules about what you did with the leftovers. There was rules about what you did with the drippings, the blood. I mean, there was rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. Like, oh, you can't bake the bread like that. You have to bake the bread like this. Oh, you can't season the vegetables like that. You have to season the vegetables like this. Like, it's the most complicated thing in the entire world. And Jesus stood up in the middle of that and he takes a piece of bread and a cup and all he says is, do this in remembrance of me. 
Like, how simple is that compared to what they were just doing? Right? Bake it like this. Stand like this. Put your shoes on. No, you can't eat it sitting down. No, you can't season the vegetables. Like, and Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Do this in remembrance of me. And we have one piece of bread and one drink of the cup. And now we, we call that communion, okay? We do this in remembrance of him. And every once in a while at church, you'll see that they have a cup here and a bread here. And it's like, we're like, as humans, we like have to make things more complicated than they are. And so we're like, it can't be that simple. Like, can we have a fancier cup, right? Can we make the bread, like, more complicated to make? Like, is there a way that, like, we can, like, limit? Like, we, it's like this urge inside of us to make it more complicated than it actually is. And Jesus, in the contrast to this complicated meal, says, no, 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 we don't relate to God like this anymore. It's actually incredibly simple. It's actually incredibly simple. And that's why when we start to add things, Paul's like, no, 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 no. Like, we already came from the complicated thing. Like, if we were going to start adding rules back in, like, we would be back in that. We're going to end up there if we keep doing this. It's supposed to be simple. It's funny, because as a pastor, uh, you know, Bible college kids, like, I love them. Good for them. They're honoring God with their life. They're trying to, like, I 100% agree with Bible college, and I'm grateful for all those kids. But it's like a, like, requirement to get into the second semester of Bible college, I think, that you have to argue with your pastor about communion. Like, it's like, it's like, ah, and they come up, and they're like, you know, communion was actually a full meal the first time. Like, and yeah, I get it. I, you read your Bible. Good for you. Like, this is awesome. You read some history books. It was a full meal when they started. Like, I understand. But and, and, and what they're saying when they start to argue about that is it's like, this thing that we do is too simple. It's almost ridiculously simple. It's almost like comically simple that you could just take a little piece of bread and a little drink of cup, and that will somehow remind you of the greatest gift that's ever been given. It's supposed to be ridiculously simple. Like, that was Jesus's intention. Like, you, you look at it, and, like, people from the outside might come and be like, it's too easy. Are you kidding? You think that's the thing that, like, is the foundation of your salvation for all eternity? Yeah, it's supposed to be ridiculously simple so that nobody has a barrier between them and salvation. It's supposed to be so ridiculously easy that nobody is excluded. That was the intention. So if we try to make it more complicated, if we try to put more barriers in the way, we're working against God. And that's why it's such a big deal to Paul, right? It's really important to God that it's that simple. Do you understand that? I did not make this up. Jesus is the one that stood on that night before he was crucified and bread, cup, remember me. And he didn't even say bread, cup, do it like this, otherwise you're all going to hell. He didn't. He just said, do this to remember me. Remember the new covenant. But he didn't say that was even a requirement of the new covenant. And God does not need your help to save you. Did you know that? God's not like looking down from heaven like I was going to save him, but he just won't follow enough rules. I don't know what to do about it. Right? Like God does not, when we start doing this, it's Jesus plus the rules I follow that save me. We have misunderstood the Bible. 
Okay? There's a big fancy word for this idea that church people use. It's called legalism. And it's the idea that we need to do something else on top of accept what Jesus did on the cross in order to be acceptable to God for all eternity. So I actually made a slide for you. I'll put it up on here. If we put this into an equation, this is what it would look like. Jesus plus fill in the blank is what equals your salvation. Jesus plus, and it doesn't matter what the thing is, whatever you want to put in the blank, right? It doesn't matter what you think it is. If you have something in that blank, then you misunderstood the gospel. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. There is no blank. Whosoever believes in him has everlasting life. And it doesn't say whosoever believes in him and votes the right way or has the right perspective on abortion or whoever homeschools their kids or whoever wears the most modest swimsuit or whoever, right? All the things that we do, right? That we're kind of like, well, goes to the right church, reads the right Bible version, has the right Bible stickers, right? Like, you know, ties the most. All the things that we put in there, like you have to do this or like... And here's the thing about it. It's so simple that later on Paul would write a letter to the Corinthians and say the gospel is scandalously simple. Like, it's, it's like a scandal. It's like, can you believe that happened? Right? There is no blank. It, you accept what Jesus did. You accept the goodness of God that he has offered you through the life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. And you have salvation. Like, that's how easy it is. It's a scandal. And that's why it's so important that we represent the gospel correctly. Because the gospel is as simple as it is because God does not want us to add anything to it. Now, most people, especially church people, have been around long enough that we know if we were to say something like this, we would sound really stupid. Like, we've read enough of the Bible, like, we can't actually say that people won't get into heaven if they don't follow the rules. Like, that would sound really terrible. That would make us come across as really judgmental. We cannot come across as judgmental. So, we would never say it out loud, but we have this secret equation in our minds. It's like a secret one that we don't tell anybody about. Like, we live by it, but we would never say it out loud or acknowledge it. And it's like Fight Club. We don't talk about Fight Club. Right? It's like this, this like secret equation that's not as offensive as this equation, but it's this other equation that we kind of live by, but we don't ever tell anybody we live by it because it would be exposed as also legalism. And here's the second equation. Jesus plus fill in the blank equals God ex- God's acceptance. Right? And so we wouldn't say that, you know, the rule you're not following is keeping you out of heaven. Like, that's pretty harsh. But we definitely feel that God likes us more because we make good choices. We definitely feel that God likes us more than the other person who's not going to the church we go to. I mean, they're probably still going to get to heaven, but they're going to be on like level three. going to be like level eight. I mean, Billy Graham's like level 20, so we're not, we're not crazy prideful. But we definitely think the things that we do makes God like us more. So this actually works in two ways. The first one is actually negative. And some of you get bummed out because you know you should be doing more. This happens all the time with me. I just see people on the street and uh, I'm just like, hey. And the first thing they say, I'm coming back to church. <laughs> just want to be friends. 
Right? I guess like being a pastor is just like I've forfeited some like natural interactions with humans that like I don't get to have anymore, right? And I'm not trying to be guilt guy. I'm just saying hello to somebody on the street. But this is how it works negatively. Like we come to church or we hear a Bible verse or we, we read the scriptures or something and we think I should be doing more. I should be trying harder. I know I should be doing this better, right? And it starts to like push us down, right? Because we're living our lives according to this equation. And we think because I haven't gone to church enough, because I haven't tithed enough, because I haven't read enough of my Bible, then God likes me. He's probably going to let me into heaven, but he's kind of like, really? Really, Bill? If your name's Bill, I just made that up, so I didn't mean, you know, sorry. Right? Really, Sally? You're just like, I can't believe, like, this negative pressure that's coming from God, but it's actually made up because it's not in your Bible. The other way this works is positive. Because you think to yourself, I go to the right church, I have the right theology, I vote for the right party, I treat people the right way, I know the right information, I've done the right things, so I don't want to brag, but I'm kind of a big deal. God's pretty happy with me. God's looking down, he's like, that guy, he's got to figure it out. And I'm like, I know, right? Just, you're welcome. And maybe my good life doesn't save me, but God is pretty happy with the way I live my life, and he definitely likes me more than the people over there who don't go to the right church and don't vote the right way and don't understand the right theology and don't treat people the way that I treat people and don't have the information that I understand. And they root for the patriots, and everybody knows that makes God hate you because patriots are cheaters, right? Like, this is the idea, right? We have this idea that God is up in heaven. He's, like, evaluating us constantly. It's like, yeah. You're accepted or you're not. I like you or I don't like you. Now, both equations, the Jesus plus fill in the blank equals salvation and the Jesus plus fill in the blank equals God's acceptance. Both of those are legalism. You need to know that about yourself. Okay? Both equations are you trusting in yourself for either your eternal salvation or your acceptance to God. And I'm telling you, that's not in the Bible. And it's why Paul was willing to go to battle for this. It's why it was such a big deal. It's why it's like you had a few drinks, you're about to get in the car, and Paul's like, no, stop living like that. This is a big deal. It's a huge deal to Paul because he recognizes it as a huge problem when we start adding to the word of God. When you start piggybacking and adding your own stuff to the gospel, things get really weird, really quick. And the worst part is then you start putting roadblocks in between people and the God who is drawing them to himself. It's almost like standing like at the pearly gates, not that there are pearly gates, you know what I mean, right? And going, not actually, you got to fiddle this out first. Actually clean yourself up, right? Like we would not ever do that. And yet we would live according to this equation that would do it in our hearts. And you might be thinking it's one little rule and why is it a big deal? Here's what you may not have thought about. It's actually an incredible insult to the love of God to think that he could love you more because you were a good person. It's incredibly insulting to love of God. Like here's an example. How many parents do we got in here? We got a few. Okay, right? So if I were to come to you, let's just say like you have more than one child. Okay, and I come up to you after service. I don't know you at all. And I'm like, hey, I see that you love one of your children more than the other. That's cool. 
Like you, you love your older daughter a lot more than you love your younger daughter. That's awesome. How many parents would be offended by that? You'd be like, who, stop doing that. That's not true. I love all my kids the same. Because to imply that you love one kid more than another kid would imply that you are withholding love from one of your children. I'm like, man, if you had more things I like, I would love you more, like your sister. Like, that's really insulting, isn't it? To a parent, if I didn't know you, I was like, hey, it's awesome that you love your son more than you love your daughters. That's cool. You'd be like, dad, stop saying, you'd be very upset. And yet we do that to God, right? It actually wouldn't change if your kid was the one saying that to you, right? I got a son and two daughters. And if my son came to me, he's like, dad, I know you love me more than you love my sisters. I'd be like, no, I don't. That, that, don't say that. He'd be like, but dad, I, I ski. They don't even ski. I cleaned my room twice last year. They haven't cleaned their room once. Both of them still pee in their pants. I know you love me more than them. And I'm like, stop saying that. And he's like, I know. I know you do. I'm, no, stop insinuating them withholding love from one because I care about these other things. And that's what we do to God when we start living by this equation that my behavior somehow makes me more lovable to God. It's insulting to his love because it's insinuating that he's withholding love from people on this planet because of their behavior. It's just not true. It's insulting to God like it would be insulting to any parent on the planet. Now, not only is this attitude of legalism an insult to the love of God and an insult, it's also an insult to the work of Christ. Um, as if what Christ did on the cross was not enough. Like you're looking at the cross and you're like, you know what? It just needs something else. It just needs a little bit more. I mean, this is cool, this whole like death on the cross, crucifixion thing, but you're, you're really close, Jesus. You almost had it. I'll give you an example. Um, when Megan and I were first married, I, uh, we were both working. She was working at a bank. I was working at a golf course in the church and as a ski instructor. So whatever job I was working that day, I don't remember. But I got off earlier, and I was like, hey, we've only been married a couple weeks. And I was like, I'm going to go home early. I'm going to make my wife dinner, and I'm going to make a fancy dinner. Right? So we didn't make any money. We were, like, young and no money and, like, living in a manufactured home and like just it was just we're just doing the thing right that you do when you don't have a lot of money and I went to the store and I bought shrimp and it cost me $16 y'all $16 in shrimp I was so excited and like I made Thai basil shrimp bowls right I bought the the all the ingredients I like grated my own ginger and like tore the basil and like sauteed the shrimp and got the rice like I had it all right and she came in the door and I put it in this nice bowl and I like placed the shrimp and tried to make it look all fancy and the basil on top it was incredible I did a great job humbly speaking and you know what she did she walks in she looks at it. She goes, oh, cool. She walks over to the kitchen, the fridge, opens it, and grabs our 99-cent Kroger barbecue sauce. It's like, <laughs> and I was like, now, this is, I'm not the hero of this story. My wife doesn't like seafood that much, 
right? So lesson number one, dudes, find out what your wife likes before you just make something you like and then pretend it's for your wife, right? So that was my big problem. I was like, I like this. She should like this. So she didn't really like shrimp. So she was like, you know what would fix this? Barbecue sauce. But like, I was so offended because I spent $16 on shrimp and her 99 cent barbecue sauce was like all over. I spent time and money and energy and thought on this dinner that I was making and she was like all over it. And I think there's a lot of Christians that do that to the cross. We're standing there, we're like, you know what? You just needs a little something else. Just needs a little bit of me being a good person. I mean, you were close, Jesus. You almost did enough for me, but just, and we take our 99 cent Kroger barbecue sauce on the gospel. You see how that might be insulting to somebody? You see how that might be a misrepresentation of what God intended to do with the gospel? To stand there in light of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the promise of the word of God and say, hey, you almost had it, but let me help you out here. The Bible actually is a lot more offensive about the nice things you do for God. It doesn't say it's barbecue sauce. It says it's dirty rags. And I'll let you figure out what that means, but it's not great, right? There is like the good works that we claim to offer God on top of the gospel in order to achieve salvation are just so, or in order to make God like us more. It's just such an offense to him. It's such an offense to him. And, and maybe you didn't think it was a big deal, but you're not the one who's being misrepresented. Right? You're not the one whose gospel has been distorted. And you look, I don't know why you're making such a big deal of this. Because it's God's gospel. He came up with it. So he gets a little bummed out when you squirt barbecue sauce on it. Like, he didn't need that. He didn't need your help. He didn't need your extra. And he definitely didn't need to be misrepresented by you to another person. And that's why Paul makes such a big deal about this. Now, there's another really obvious reason that this is a very big deal to Paul and the believers. Not only is it insulting to God, but it's simply not true. It's just not true that you have to do something else in order to be saved or do something else in order to be accepted by God. Look at verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, verse 9. And he made no distinction Underline that if it's your Bible. If it's our Bible, you can underline it too. That's fine. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their heart by faith. So Peter stands up. He says, you know what? Now that I think about it, I preached the gospel to the Gentiles, and God gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave the Holy Spirit to us. And guess what? They weren't circumcised when he did it. They had not followed the law of Moses when God gave them the Holy Spirit. God made no distinction between them and us when he sent his Holy Spirit because they had not followed any of the rules. So what they are saying must be true. What Paul is saying must be true. If God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile, then I shouldn't either. 
right? If God does not operate on the equations that we put up on the screen earlier, then I should recognize it as a false gospel. If God doesn't like you better because you fill in the blank, then maybe our priorities are off and we should rethink our approach to life because we're dangerously close to misrepresenting God. It's why it's a really big deal to Paul. And he says the most powerful thing in the whole chapter. Look at verse 10. This is Peter talking, remember? Peter's the one that God sent to the Gentiles. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter's processing this, and he hears about the things Paul has witnessed among the Gentiles. He thinks about the things God has done in his own life and through him for the Gentiles. And then he thinks about what it would mean to require the Gentiles to follow the law. And he realizes the law doesn't work. The law's never worked. In fact, there is evidence that legalism does not work not only in not producing the joy-filled life, but there's evidence not only in the history of the people who have tried to follow the law, but Peter's like, there's evidence in my own life that this doesn't work. And why are we doing this to these people? Our fathers and us couldn't even do it. Like I said earlier, when you get this negative side of the legalism standard, you're always thinking that God's up in heaven. Like, come on, guys, just... You're just not, I'm kind of like annoyed with you right now. Do more. Try harder. Do better. I did good. Well, not enough good. I mean, it was a start, but really? And, and it starts to push you down as you start to understand that, hey, I've never done enough for God. You never will do enough for God if you live according to legalism. Or you'll puff yourself up with pride, like thinking like, oh, I did plenty. And God's like, yeah, you're squirting barbecue sauce on the gospel here. Calm down. Peter's like, he's, he's thinking through this, and he's realizing this legalistic mindset. And the idea that he could earn affection from God by performance, not only has it not produced the kind of life that we want it to, not only has it not produced the kind of life that we were meant for, not only has it not produced the kind of life that God has called us to, but like in his own personal experience, it has failed him. He's like, why are we putting this yoke on people? Like for thousands of years, our people have not been able to carry this weight. And you don't even have to go that back, far back in history to know in my own life, like Wednesday, I didn't follow all the rules. Like this is, a, like, this is the most powerful thing that's been said this entire chapter. This understanding that you cannot earn God's affection produces a gratefulness in Peter. Now, why is it important that Peter is grateful and not burdened? Here's what you need to see as we close. Grateful hearts are soft hearts. Burdened hearts are not soft hearts. Okay? And what happens here is Peter hears what God is doing and allows the Spirit to change his heart. And this does not happen in our world today. How many of you were watching the last political debate and one side was like, you know what? As I listened to you, I realized you're right. Nobody! <laughs> right? We live in this world that's like all individualized, which is kind of cool. We can listen to whatever we want to listen to. We can watch whatever we want to watch. But then if we hear something or listen to something that maybe rubs us the wrong way, we just turn it off. And so we never have these soft hearts. 
We never evaluate. This is what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to hear from God. The Holy Spirit is supposed to work in our hearts. We're supposed to sit with the Holy Spirit and go, okay, God, is this a thing that you want to do? Is, is this real? Like, how does this match up with the Word of God? Like, is this something I'm living according to? Is this happening in me? And Peter realizes it's happening in me. Not only is it happening in me, it's happening in us. It's been happening in our people for thousands of years. Why would we put that kind of burden on them? And he repents. It's like Peter looks in the mirror and says, you know what? I've been doing it wrong. And that's such a huge piece to the puzzle. Christians are not the people who have it all right. Christians are the people who have grateful hearts and therefore soft hearts and therefore are not afraid to say, you know what? I've been doing it wrong when the Holy Spirit convicts. You know, I've been going the wrong way. I've been, I've been going about this the wrong way. What the gospel does is it proclaims God's goodness to create grateful hearts. It does not proclaim an equation for performance evaluation to create burdened hearts. It's a really big deal to Paul and to the rest of the apostles that that stays clean and clear so God is not misrepresented. And that goodness of God, that gratefulness of heart is what makes you free. If you, if you, even in the deepest parts of your mind, you're kind of living according to that equation that we put up here, like, God's pretty happy with the things I'm doing. Like, that'll never lead to freedom. That'll never lead to the type of joy that God desires for you to have. Like, God's not requiring you to be on constant performance evaluation to decide whether or not he's pleased with you that day. Like, that's a burden you were never meant to carry. And Peter realizes that. He's like, I've been living... Peter, this is like 20-ish years into Peter following Jesus right now. 20 years. And he's just now realizing, you know what? We've added some stuff to the gospel that's nonsense. How many people who have been Christians for 20 years have this kind of soft heart? Not very many, right? Like 20 years in, we're probably like, I got it. I got to figure it out, God. Don't tell me it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. So I hope you clearly get why it's a big deal. I hope you see, maybe as we sing this last song, we do this song at the end because we believe worship is a response. So as you hear the word of God, maybe you reflect a little bit. Maybe you pray to God on your own. Maybe you're like, hey, God, is this a thing I've been doing? Have I been living according to that? And I ask God for guidance. Like, how do I get out of that? How do we repent of that? Maybe I just acknowledge it. And you just rest in the goodness that God loves you, not less than the person next to you or more than the person next to you, but he loves you as much as he could possibly love you. And I'm not saying that so you could put it on like a coffee mug and just be like, hey, we're good. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying that so you can see the goodness of God this morning and be like, man, that's incredible. And it creates in you a grateful, soft heart. Amen? Amen. Worship team, come on up. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, uh, Sometimes we make it so complicated. And we think that there are things that we need to uh, do or boxes we need to check or ways we need to live in order for you to be pleased with us. That's just not true. It's a misrepresentation of you. And the scary thing is, Lord, we can misrepresent you to even our own hearts. 
I pray that we would be convicted in those areas this morning. If, if your spirit is putting its finger on places in our lives where we've been living according to an equation instead of living according to the gospel, you would reveal that to us, that you would make free people this morning. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. May we rejoice in it this morning. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Even in this time as we sing of your goodness, Lord, if there's areas that we don't have soft hearts in, Lord, reveal that to us. Lord, we desperately need to hear from you, Lord. Can't do this on our own. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing this last song.